Thank you for listening and subscribing to the Brilliance Security Podcast. Hello, my name is Steve Bocut, and I am an editor for Brilliance Security Magazine. Brilliance is an online digital publication dedicated to the security industry. Our mission, and thus our name, is to illuminate the intersection of physical and cybersecurity. We cover both of these security domains by publishing original content about threats, hacks, products, and security strategies. We hope you will enjoy this podcast and visit us at brilliancesecuritymagazine.com. Welcome to the Brilliant Security Magazine podcast, and thank you for joining us today. We appreciate your listening. Today, our guest is Jared Atkinson. Jared is the Chief Strategist at SpectreOps. We're very excited to have him with us. We're going to be talking about the evolution of purple teaming. Before I bring Jared in, let me tell you a little bit about him. So Jared is a security researcher who specializes in digital forensics and incident response. Recently, he's been building and leading private sector hunt operation capabilities. In his previous life, Jared led incident response missions for the U.S. Air Force Hunt Team, detecting and removing advanced persistent threats on Air Force and DOD networks. Passionate about PowerShell and the open source community, Jared is the lead developer of the Power Forensic and Uproots. With that, welcome, Jared. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. All right. So I'm looking forward to this. It's going to be a fascinating conversation. Before we get into the topic too much, though, I think it would be interesting to our audience if you would talk a bit about SpectreOps. It was kind of the, the background, the mission, those kinds of things. Sure. Yes. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry. I've been sick for a little for the past week or so. So I'm getting over a cold. Oh, well, we appreciate you being with us. us. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no worries. Um, yeah, so so SpectreOps is a consulting company, or we started as a consulting company about six years ago, um, and we we do both red teaming and kind of defensive consulting. So we help to help people build their security uh, program in general on the defensive side, and then we also do red teaming. Uh, one of the other things that kind of makes us a unique company is we also start uh, build a product called Bloodhound Enterprise. Many of you are probably familiar with the Bloodhound product or Bloodhound open source tool. Uh, which helps attackers kind of map attack paths through through enterprise networks, uh, Active Directory, Azure AD, things things of that nature, and understand kind of what is the shortest path from your initial foothold in the network to domain admin or or uh, whatever your target might be. Um, we started we started building a product called Bloodhound Enterprise, which is kind of trying to flip that on its head and provide defenders with a view into what are the attack paths in their environment so that they can start to remediate those and uh, and close down the different paths that attackers might take to get from kind of an unprivileged user to that tier zero domain admin uh, type type approach. So we're a consulting company, but we're using our consulting experience to build this enterprise product that hopefully uh, will, will help people make their organization more secure. Okay, excellent. Uh, before we move on, I just learned prior to this that you have uh, your own podcast. Tell our audience uh, where sure. they can go and hear more. Yeah, so uh, I host a podcast called the Detection Challenging Paradigms podcast. And the, the idea is, is we try to get into the nitty gritty of uh, what detection engineers need to understand in order to build robust and uh, capable detections. And so we dig into different attack techniques, the details that have to go on with those and different decisions that you might you might make along the way. Uh, to be able to detect uh, different activity that attackers might be implementing. 
Perfect. All right. Well, thank you. Appreciate you sharing that with us. No worries. All right. So let's maybe kind of set the background here. So um, it'd be interesting to hear your your perspective on how the testing landscape and requirements have changed over recent years, and particularly in relation to vendor tool defense claims. Yeah. So one of the things that we've noticed on the red team side, so there's this there's this general problem that we face in cybersecurity to where we we talk in abstract concepts quite frequently, and so people will say. Uh, we'll come to Spectre Ops and say, hey, we'd like a red team. And uh, generally speaking, we have an idea of what red teaming means. But uh, if one of our CEO, David McGuire, will often say, you ask 10 people uh, what red teaming means and you'll get 11 different answers, right? So, <laughs> exactly. um, And so what we do is we'll say, okay, you want a red team. Of course, we're going to try to work with you. Um, but give us give us an idea of what you're trying to achieve out of the red team. And uh, and that that really helps us to understand what are what are the goals, and then that helps us to kind of choose the prescription or the the methodology that we're going to implement. One of the things that we've noticed is that organizations have started asking uh, questions that are, go along the lines of this. So they'll say something like, "Hey, uh, we have a detection engineering program at our organization, or maybe we've bought an EDR or some commercial product, and we we're building these detections, or we've inherited these detections from our vendors." And they say that they solve some big problem like process injection or lateral movement, or uh, they stop Mimi cats or something like that. Um, we want to know, does it actually stop that? Right. And so there's this claim. So we've, we put some resources, some money, some time, some effort into solving some perceived problem. And we want to know, we want to have some sort of validation that says we actually solved it. Right. And so um, the kind of, TLDR of that is traditional red teaming in the way that most most red team providers would think about that is not the proper prescription for solving that. So a lot of times I'll I'll kind of point to, um, you know, if you're let's say you're training to run a marathon, this is the the analogy that I like to use. You're training for a marathon and you get Usain Bolt's uh, the fastest man in the world. You get his training program, right? It's not that his training program is bad, right? Because he's the fastest person in the world. Um, it's that it's not attuned to the goal that you're trying to achieve, right? It's not a tune. It's not the training program that's best fit for teaching you or training you to run a marathon. And so, what we want to do is we want to make sure that the the approach that we're taking is actually catered to the goal that you're trying to solve, which is validating detection claims. Not necessarily, you know, for instance, red teaming is more about training and stimulating uh, different processes and procedures as opposed to validating claims. And I could go into kind of why that is a little bit more if that's something that we're interested in talking about. Okay. Well, and I find it fascinating because that seems to me, uh, being a journalist and not really understanding the technical side of it, certainly not like you do, it seems like a valid request, right? I want to, I just spent a bunch of money on this tool. Mm -hmm. I'd like for you to come in and tell me, is the tool really working? These are the threats that I'm I'm worried about. So can you replicate those for me and tell me if my tool does its job? That's so right. it, it's something that can be done, right? Yeah, well, it's it's a little it's a little complicated. So um the imagine imagine that an attacker when they they're trying to go from point A to point point B or point Z. Let's mm -hmm. say um, they have a myriad of options, tools in their tool belt for how they can do that, right? right. And uh, and so traditionally, the way that we've categorized those different things that they can do is uh, through these attack techniques. And if you're familiar with MITRE ATT&CK, uh, that, that's that's an effort to try to categorize the different things that attackers can do into 
and give them names, give them labels, right? Exactly. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of variability between these technique categories. So, for instance, there's a set of techniques that are lateral movement techniques, right? Lateral movement is I'm going from computer A to computer B. I want to get code execution on computer B, and I have a set of different lateral movement techniques that would facilitate that uh, that operation, right? Um, and so there's, you know, you could use Windows services to do that. You could use something called Win, uh, WMI to, to do that. And those are, those are different. And how you're going to build a detection to, to resolve those, those issues is going to be, going to be different. The problem is, is that there's actually more variability within each of those technique categories than there is between the technique categories. And so even if I've decided to use a service to do lateral movement, there's actually lots of different ways for me to use that service to create a service that will potentially invalidate some of the assumptions that are built into that detection rule. Mm. And so when we're talking about validating, what we want to do is we want to present, present the rule with as many of those different variations as we possibly can uh, so, that, so that we can make sure that we're catching all the edges, basically. Got it. Okay, that that makes sense. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a little bit later to talk about the the importance of these different variations and 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 uh, um, making provisions for that. But before we get there, uh, maybe you could talk to us about some of the common shortcomings of red team assessments that that you've seen and how they might improve. Yeah. yeah so okay. So the when I think of shortcomings of red teaming, I think about it in the context of kind of like what is your goal. And so when it comes to validating security controls, detections, preventative controls, things of that nature, uh, red teaming just like I, it's kind of like the Usain Bolt training plan uh, mm -hmm. for a marathon, right? Um, it's just not the right tool. And the reason for that is that generally speaking, a red team is uh, is kind of constrained by the requirement of being a coherent attack path. So generally speaking, a red team is going to be uh, you don't have access to the network. Sometimes the the access is seeded, which means that you have like an initial foothold or somebody, some uh, a known entity within your client or your target environment is going to give you initial access. But sometimes you have to fish in from from the beginning, right? So you don't have any yeah. access to begin with. But then everything you do from beginning to end has to make sense in the context of the a coherent attack path, right? And so I'm moving from computer A to computer B, and that's progressing me towards my goal. And there's some sort of like overarching goals that I'm trying to or training objectives that I'm trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that, that's that's useful in certain contexts in training. A lot of times red teamings, red teams are really useful for stimulating uh, behavior that's not going to be normal within the environment so that you so that the defensive organization can like train some sort of process or procedure that maybe they don't do on a daily basis. Um, but the problem is, is that that coherence actually is constraining in some sense, right? So imagine that I'm laterally moving from, from computer A to computer B. Well, I'm only going to do that once. I'm not going to do it in 27 different ways just to make sure that I run through the gamut of all the different options that I have. I'm going to do it one way, and then I'll probably do it the same way when I move from computer B to computer C because I already know that it works, right? right? Um, and so if I'm trying to validate my security security controls, my detection that's targeting one particular technique for lateral movement, I'm not necessarily giving it the variation that it needs in order to evaluate things. And so there's this weird kind of conundrum, which is if you detect a red team, 
Did you detect the red team because they happened to do the one thing that you were prepared to detect? Or do you have a completely robust capability? And the inverse is also true. If you don't detect a red team, did you not detect them because they happened to do the one thing that you weren't prepared for? Or are you just terrible? Like, do you not have any solution at all? And the, and the problem is, is that the red team doesn't collect the data that's necessary to answer that question. Okay, thank you. Yep. So let, let's talk about let's talk about the why, the, the reason that that happens. Is it um, just a lack of knowledge, um, or or is it because we're just focused on here's my goal, this is what I want to perceive, or this is what I want to detect, uh, this is what I'm worried about. So what is? Yeah, I, well, I think it's um, because red team red team exercises are often kind of uh, they have training objectives or they're they're um goal oriented the goals are the thing that's that's driving or the training objectives are the thing that's driving like prove access to this resource this sql right. server something like that that's the thing that's driving everything that the the red teamer does right. and if if your goal is to validate a security control then that's a that's just a different goal and so the way that you're going to kind of execute your operation is going to be different in light of kind of that's that those different goals and so the the problem is is a lot of times red teams have a much broader kind of overarching goal as opposed to a very specific it it's ultimately like when we start to do the when we think about the scientific method right one of the mm -hmm. things that you want to do is you want to control all the variables that you possibly can um and so when you make a change you want to you want to make kind of like the smallest most controlled change that you possibly that you possibly can um when we're talking about purple teaming we're talking about a very very small landscape of small changes can make a huge impact on whether or not you detect the behavior. And so we want to we want to make sure that when we're when we're trying to validate security controls, which is that's kind of my definition of what purple teaming is trying to do, you want to you want to make very small changes as opposed to in a red team you might be making much larger changes that have uh that that take away your control and the constrained kind of sense of the of the test. Okay. So um is that indeed how teams can address these limitations? Is just changing their approach, or what else can they do? Yeah. So generally, what we tell what we tell our clients is, um, let's you you want a red you a lot almost every time they're going to say we want a red team. That's just kind of how this right. this comes in. And so what we'll do is we'll say, okay, well tell us why. Like, what are you trying to get out of this? Sometimes it's a compliance answer, right? And so that's going to drive how we're going to yeah. solve this. Sometimes it's a uh, we we just need to. Uh, convince you know the C-suite that cyber is actually a problem, and so that's that's kind of like a it's a little bit more of a shock and awe type campaign uh, than than something else. But a lot of times they'll say something specifically like, "We just want to know whether our security controls work." And if that's the case, what we'll do is we'll say, "Hey, uh, we know you asked for a red team, and maybe you have an idea of what the what a red team is, and it's probably that more train objective, coherent attack path type type philosophy." But what we're going to do is suggest to you that this is probably a, a better option. And what we're going to do is uh, approach the purple team from a more atomic is the the kind of the term that I like to use, um, atomic testing perspective. And so there's there's this project by Red Canary called Atomic Red Team. It's an open source project. And it's it's kind of um, the precursor to all this this type of testing, which is what we're going to do is we're going to ignore the overarching attack path, right? So we don't care what you did before or what you did after. What we're going to do is we're going to execute test cases, individual test cases, 
which represent the specific attack technique or behavior that you're interested in, that you built a detection for. And we're going to see how your security controls actually interact with that, right? And the idea is, is that we're going to potentially run 10, 15 different uh, test cases. And, and hopefully by running those 10 or 15 different test cases, we're going to um, elicit different responses from your security controls so we can know kind of where does this thing break, right? Where is it successful and where, where, is it bre- where does it break? And then you could kind of do the analysis and say, okay, well, test case one worked, test case five failed, right? What's the difference between test case one and test case five? And that helps us to understand um, kind of where the limitations on those security controls actually are. Interesting. So it just occurs to me. So where where do you come up with the 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 these test cases, right? So the yeah. basis for these is it you know successful? You know, have you done post postmortems on successful attacks, or yeah. how does that work? Okay. Well, so this is this is a little bit of a controversial. Might not be the right word, but there's there's some some ideas about how how you would go about doing this. I think uh, it's always best to start with things that you know, right? And uh, and there's this. I'm sure you're familiar with the uh, Donald Rumsfeld's, you know, kind of there's known knowns sure. and yeah. So yeah. Um, what, what I as an individual know is different than what Spectre Ops knows and what Spectre Ops knows is different than what the InfoSec industry knows. Right. And so um, you want to start with what you know, as an individual move to what kind of like your organization knows and then move to the industry. And what you, what you do is you find kind of either threat reports or malware samples which or open source projects, even open source uh, red team tools, for instance, that that, you know, implement this behavior. So maybe it's process injection, maybe it's credential dumping from LSAS. There's there, it could be whatever you're, you're interested in. And then what we do is we start digging into uh, through reverse engineering, through looking at source code. How how are they actually achieving this behavior? Right. Um, how are they implementing that behavior? And I have a I have a blog series called the on detection blog series, um, which maybe I'll send, I'll send the link to you, Steve, so okay, that you yeah, can put it in we'll, the show notes. We'll um, and that, that kind of describes the technical approach of how we would go about doing that. And so what we do is we look at, let's say we look at 20 different malware samples. What we find is that the vast majority of them are going to be the same, right? Because they're all derivative. And so it's like, you know, for credential dumping from LSAS, Mimi Cats is kind of like that. I call it the prototypical uh, example. It's the gold standard. And then what happens is everybody kind of copies Mimikatz and re-implements it in different languages, Python or PowerShell or whatever. And so, but they're doing it in the same way. And so generally, if you built a nice behavioral detection for Mimikatz, you're going to detect the PowerShell implementation as well. But occasionally, there's going to be an example to where somebody has fundamentally changed some aspect of how Mimikatz did what it did because they're, they're sensitive to some sort of detective control or preventative control. And so it's actually almost like I think of it like natural selection to where there the think of it um, in selection, there's different types of selective pressures. There's environmental pressure, right, which is uh, if you're in a cold area, you're going to have more body hair probably um, to, to stay warm. Uh, but there's also predation, which is another selective pressure, which is, you know, um, antelope are extremely fast because the fat, the slow antelope were eaten by by lions. Right. Yeah. Um and so imagine that the EDR is the predator from the perspective of the attacker. And so if an EDR, especially in preventative use cases, if an EDR stops something from happening, that's, that's the aspect of that behavior that's most likely to change, 
because that's an immediate signal. Hey, the thing that I did didn't work. Why didn't it work? Well, it's because the EDR is triggering on this specific aspect of the behavior. So I'm going to see, is there a way that I can still achieve the overarching goal of the behavior while doing it in a slightly different way? And so you start to see small changes. And as you analyze all these different samples, essentially, you start to see, okay, well, there's a range of difference. There's all there's a cluster of very similar to the kind of prototypical initial example, but then there's there's other samples that become more and more different as as they kind of progress along the timeline. Right. Interesting. Okay. Um, so that in my mind, that kind of brings us full circle back to this, you know, the importance of uh, using various test cases. So is yeah. it is it because the, the threat actors are evolving rapidly, or is it um, yeah uh, their 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 uh, their approach generally, or is it just these minor um, changes that you've just kind of described that well they're gonna they're gonna do this um, or emphasize this particular attack methodology? How, what do you think yeah. about that? Well, so so what we want to do with the test cases is. Um, uh, one of the big kind of criticisms that I have of kind of the traditional atomic testing is the devil's in the devil's actually in the details, right? So um, your validation uh, uh, exercise is only going to be as good as the test cases that you select. Okay. And so imagine that there's this range of variation. So there's, there's a bunch of very variations or implementations that are very similar. And then there's, there's a few that are very different, right? Um, what we want to do is we want to select a set of like just for just for context when it comes to process injection i've uh, at at some level of analysis that's it gets really detailed but at some level of analysis i've identified that there's 4.4 million variations of process injection that are possible right okay. and so that's uh you're not going to test 4.4 million variations nobody nobody's going to do that a lot of times we test like 10 variations and so the question is is how do I select the 10 test cases that best represent the, the range of variation that exists within that 4.4 million? So you want to use those 10 test cases almost as a proxy for the 4.4 million. <clears throat> and the way that you do that is through sampling, essentially, which is uh, show like you want, let's say you only had two test cases. What you want to do is you want to maximize the diversity between those two test cases. Because in doing that, if I have a detection rule and it detects the two most different test cases, then I can I can make I could draw some inference about what it would do for everything that's in between. Okay, so it's like covering the spread or a whole spectrum, right? So if yep. you want to you want to take your if you're using ten test cases, you want those ten to cover the spectrum of yep. all things possible as known today. Right? That's right. Yeah, and so it's always as known today. That's a that's a really important fact because it's like we don't we don't know everything that's possible but what we should be doing is we should be trying to extend we should try be trying to expand what is known to us constantly right yeah. and then we want right. to make sure that we integrate that back into our test cases and what yeah. what we find is that a lot of times people will um when they design their test cases they use quantity as a proxy for quality which means that if i have 10 test cases 10 tens i mean if you don't know about the 4.4 million number, 10 mm -hmm. seems like a lot of test cases. Right. And you're like, oh, we must be good because we have 10 test cases. But what we what I found when I do analysis of those test cases is essentially nine out of the 10 are going to be from that like prototypical cluster, and you'll have one that's different. And so 
you have 10 test cases and it's it gives the illusion of kind of this good testing this uh broad testing but really what you're doing uh the spectrum comment that you made is a really good one when i i did a webinar on purple teaming and i used the color spectrum as a as kind oh. of a analogy sure. so it's it's perfect but imagine yeah. that you're trying to test your ability to detect the colors on the color spectrum but then you just give uh a bunch of you give test cases where you show somebody pink and then you show somebody red and then red orange and orange and yellow but you never actually go into like the cold side of the color spectrum that's essentially what's happening is you you're you're showing people a bunch of different colors but those colors are all very similar and so you have kind of a bias in your in your testing interesting um so You've kind of alluded to, to the evolution um, of attack techniques, and and I, I think you've mentioned a couple of, of those. Is there anything else that you can share with us about examples of how these attack techniques have evolved? Sure. Yeah. So um, one one really simple uh, kind of example that probably a lot of people that if you're on the more technical side or if you've you've done uh, API Windows API programming, you're probably familiar with this example. So uh, the standard kind of approach to process injection is to use a sequence of API functions that people have probably heard of, even if they're not a programmer, uh, which is open process, which opens a handle to the target process that you're interested in injecting your code into, um, virtual alloc EX, which allocates a buffer and memory in that remote process, write process memory, which writes your, your payload, the, the malicious code that you want to inject into that buffer, and then create remote thread, right? And so that's kind of that's the sequence of functions that somebody would implement in kind of standard process injection. And so um, then you start thinking about, okay, well, how do I actually do the detection? And the, the kind of standard answer is most people will look for that, that thread creation, create remote thread, right? Um, and that's the thing that, that's the actual execution of, of the code. And so that's the thing that people most, that's like basically saying, we've now completed injection when that thread is created. And so a lot of EDRs will start looking for examples of remote thread creation. And so attackers are like, okay, I want to do process injection, but the EDRs are attuned to this remote thread creation. Is there a way that I can execute my code without creating a new thread? And the answer is, is yes, there is, right? And so there's this uh, kind of form called thread hijacking, which is where what you do is you find an existing thread that's not super important. And you say, hey, I know you're supposed to be doing this thing over here, but what I want you to do is I want you to temporarily change your your kind of perspective and focus on this code that I've put, you know, put here in, in memory. And I want you to execute that real quick before going back to the thing that you were already doing. And mm -hmm. so now you're still achieving the same outcome, which is you've you're executing your malicious code in some legitimate process like SVC host or or whatever it is, right? But you did it without creating a new thread. And so the the problem is, is that every detection rule or preventative control that's focused on new threads being created is now invalid for that variation. Okay. And so that's that would be like a kind of a technical example. But there's tons of tons of examples like this to where what happens is attackers say, how how are the defenders trying to address this problem? And how can I invalidate the assumptions? So a big a big deal with this whole thing is assumptions. We're making assumptions about what conditions have to be true in order for this behavior to occur. And that's from a defender perspective. And then the attacker is saying, well, is that assumption actually true? 
So they're trying to they're trying to figure out, <clears throat> excuse me, what what assumptions did the defender make, and then how can I invalidate those assumptions? And if they if they can invalidate it, they have success, and they're not going to be detected at least in that small component of the attack chain. And I guess so. The the, the point there is that the the attackers are constantly evolving, and defenders. Uh, often I'm sure that defenders feel this way. We're sticking our fingers in the crack in the dam uh, <laughs> and you just keep trying to plug the holes, right? And then the hole moves to another location. And, and I live in I live in Las Vegas. So I just had the Vegas vacation that uh, that scene in Vegas vacation when Chevy Chase is like doing that in, yeah, yeah, in the yeah. Hoover Dam. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. All right. So I think our audience would appreciate your perspective on what the future <laughs> might bring. So Tell us what you think about the future of purple team uh, assessments and what that might look like. Yeah. So really what we're trying to do <laughs> is we're trying to teach people how to evaluate these malware samples, right? So as, as mal, so it, this even goes into things like CTI, cyber threat intelligence. Um, when it starts, when you start thinking about what types of information do detection engineers actually need? Um, and so detection engineers could be the vendor has detection engineers that then kind of all their customers inherit their capability. But then also a lot of organizations are starting to have their own kind of detection engineering team or uh, security control team. And what we what we see is um, what type of information do they need? Right. And what we what we found is that by analyzing, for instance, the API functions that certain malware implementations are calling. We can start to understand the types of events that are going to be generated as a result of that, right? Um, so like, like I said, with that create remote thread, well, that's creating a thread. And so now I can start to go through my EDR and say, do I have any events that, that notify me when a thread is being created, right? And that, that, uh, so by looking at the API functions that are being called, you can infer the types of behaviors and events that are going to be generated. And so as we start to kind of build this catalog that says, hey, we've looked at all the known process injection malware samples. And that doesn't mean that that we have everything that's ever going to be created. It just means that we have a good catalog for what there is now. We can start to say, what are the different variations that that are that are currently known? And how are those different to and how would they invalidate our assumptions? And so it's it's kind of like getting people in the mode to where when you're building detections, it's important to understand how how does this actually work from kind of like this API level? And then what makes this implementation different from that implementation? Is it something that's what I would call trivial, which is uh, this, this program's written in C and this program's written in C sharp, but they do exactly the same thing? Or is it something that's kind of profound in the sense of, um, hey, this this program relies on the creation of a new thread to execute the code, but this this other program hijacks an existing thread, and that invalidates the assumption. I think maybe the other component, uh, not to give too much before you you kind of comment, but the other component is we have to understand that we're always making assumptions, and so there's this principle in risk management called the better wrong than vague principle, which okay. is uh, it it operates on the assumption that or on the axiom that you're you're always making assumptions and every every as soon as you're trying to solve a problem that is sufficiently complex you must make assumptions to control for for variables that you that you otherwise can't control and when you do that 
it's better to make those assumptions explicitly to where you state them and they are now subject to criticism and critique uh, than it is to make them silently to where nobody's ever going to be aware of them. Because now if I, if I make an assumption that says, I assume just to stick with the same, same example, that process injection requires a, a new thread to be created in order to execute the code. One of the red teamers on, on my team could be like, oh, well, actually, I, I'm aware of this example over here. Have you seen that? To where you can actually just hijack an existing thread. And so that invalidates your assumption. And now I'm like, oh, okay, well, I don't even have to do the testing to know that my detection rule is not going to work because I've already, I made that assumption explicitly. I publicized that at least within my organization. And somebody was able to give me that feedback and say, hey, this assumption that you made is actually not true. Um, here's a counterexample to it. Yeah, interesting. All right. And so we kind of began the conversation. You talked about some common mis misperceptions about red and purple teaming assessments. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you want to add to that or do you think we've covered that? Yeah, I would, you know, I would say that um, as soon as you start, I we kind of say that purple teaming is um, the evaluation of security control efficacy through atomic testing using deliberately selected test cases. So that's that's kind of my elevator, elevator speech. So the keys are validation of security controls. So there's a question of what is a security control? Well, the way that I define that is uh, detective detection rules, right? So rules that are going to alert you when some behavior, some predefined behavior occurs and preventative controls, which are things that stop things, you know, some behavior from happening. Um, so security controls, it's, it's important to be holistic in both the detective and preventative aspect of things. Um, evaluation. So we want to know whether these things actually do the thing that we set out to do in the first place, right? So a lot of times you have this idea of what is the problem, and then you design some solution. And there's, there's issues to where your solution might not solve the problem as you conceive it. Um, and so that, that's, that's what we're trying to figure out. And then there's also kind of what I would call the ontological issue, which is, is the problem that you identified even the actual problem in the first place? Um, and so, and so a lot of times from a third party perspective, what, what can ha what can be really useful from a third party perspective is they, the third party might have a different perspective or a different understanding of the threat than you do. And so they come in and they might be able to present you with edges in the, in the problem that maybe you hadn't considered in the first place. Right. Okay. Uh, and could you... Does it is it fair to say then that that's what an organization like SpectreOps does? Is they would come in, and the organization may have just a fine defensive team. They may have red and purple teams set up, and they're doing lots of things. But yeah. that added perspective that oh yeah. well, we've seen this. Have you like like you you mentioned earlier? Uh, I would think would be invaluable. So is it fair to say that that's what yeah. an organization does? That's exactly right. Yeah. So what we find actually, so we talk about this atomic testing. Um, there's in in risk management i'm not not to use super fancy words but there's there's different types of risk right there's uh ontological risk which is this idea of maybe uh you don't know everything that's possible and so your risk assessment hasn't considered certain things right so that those would be like unknown unknowns so to mm -hmm. speak would be ontological risk there's epistemic risk which is uh, you understand conceptually that something's possible, but maybe you don't have a mechanism to be able to collect information that would help to uh, show that the risk is is present, if that makes sense. And then there's aleatoric risk. And alea 
in Latin means dice. And so that's the roll of the dice, right? And so you could have the correct solution, but just through random chance, you might have some issue. So actually, just to kind of give the example, before before shooting the podcast, we had some audio visual issues. And we exactly. talked about, and we talked about how it's like, oh, every time I record the po- uh, podcast, this is all this is all good to go, and this time it just doesn't work. That would be aleatoric, right? Because right. it's it's just this random chance. So it's like I have a detection rule in place. It collects this. It relies on this information. It reports in this way. It, the behavior that I expected to happen actually expect actually occurred, but the the system didn't work as I expected. Maybe my sensor fell over for whatever reason. Maybe things didn't get reported to the sim correctly, whatever it might be. And so what we find is that a lot of times people build these test cases and they're addressing the aleatoric aspect of things, which is we have specific cases which we expect our detection to, to detect. And so we built, we built validation uh, for that to where every once in a while we're going to run this test case and just make sure that things are working the way that we expect them. But they very rare... It, it may actually be impossible to do this because once you know about it, then you're addressing it. But they, they have a hard time doing the ontological aspect of things, which is, can I present a new variation that maybe I'm not expecting? And that's where third parties come in. And uh, maybe the, the premise is that at SpectreOps, we understand the threats better than the average organization. And so right. we're able to present you with aspects of the threat in ways that maybe you, you hadn't considered previously. Yeah, that, that makes total sense because uh, from inside that team, how could they protect? How could they protect against an ontological threat if they don't even have any concept of what that might look like? Or yeah, you. At the very least, you can't protect against the ontological threat right now, but maybe you could expand over time. You can expand and integrate those what were previously ontological risk into. Right. Right. Work risk. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, we're about out of time. I do want to end with, uh, we have uh, a question that we always like to end with, and it's very open-ended. The point of this question, the essence of the question is, what should I have asked that I failed to ask? Uh, but the question is, is there anything else that you think our audience needs to know, either about purple teaming or about Spectre Pops that you'd like for them to know? Yeah. Um, I think I think one thing that I, I really like to impress on people is a lot of times I hear um, comments that are that are something like, "I am successful in information security, and I don't know how to program. Therefore, you don't have to know how to program in order to do information security." And I think that that is literally true. So this is not not me saying that if you don't know how to program, you don't know how you're you're not going to be useful in information security. However, I think that when it comes to understanding the nuance between threats. Having some ability, some experience programming and actually implementing these these different threats. So it's actually like, hey, if you're even if you're a detection engineer, it's useful to write, you know, POC malware that implements mm-hmm. these threats because that's inevitably going to cause you to have a better understanding of how the different pieces come together and the different different actions that you might be uh, able to detect. And so I would I would encourage people to kind of get out there, get their hands dirty and actually start trying to play around with programming just because first of all, it helps you think more kind of logically about how things work. Uh, it makes you think about, um, ah, what's the word when you, um, in programming, when you have like self-referential functions that like a function that calls itself, I can't even think of what it's called. Um, Nah, I can't, I can't think it. It helps you think more logically is basically the yeah. idea. Um, 
but it also helps you understand how those components kind of uh, compose together so that you understand where attackers actually can change things and where they can't. And uh, this gets into one of your questions about, do we just kind of like look at what's out there? Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that I, I really like doing is thinking, uh, there's this book called The Black Swan by Nassim Nicholas Taleb, if you're familiar with it. Uh, I'm not. Okay, so he's a... Uh, a stock trader. He's a professor at Columbia as well. And one of the things that he's... The black swan is this idea of the unpredictable event that has a outsized impact on society. So like the 2008 financial uh, real estate real estate crash is an example of that to where what he says is that if you're using a Gaussian model, which is like the, um, the traditional bell curve, mm -hmm. and you say that things that happen more frequently are going to be in the fat portion of the, of the bell curve, and therefore those things have a higher probability... One of the the principles of the black swan is that everything that that has a huge impact is is uh pro like probabilistically rare, statistically rare, right? So they're on the tails of the distribution, and they may have never happened before, right? And things that happen frequently have very low impact. And so what he's saying is that you want to start moving from a probabilistic model to a possibilistic model, which is just because I haven't seen it before doesn't mean it can't happen. And I want to be prepared for what could happen as opposed to what has happened in the past. And so that's that's one thing that I want to, that programming really is going to help you kind of think about is what could happen as opposed to only being reliant upon what you've seen happen in the past. That's happened in the past. Yeah. Excellent. Very good advice. Thank you. I yep. appreciate that. No worries. Well, we're out of time. But thank you, Jared. This has been fascinating. Uh, I really appreciate your time today. Definitely. Thank you, Steve. All right. And a big thanks to our listeners for being with us. And please remember to like and subscribe if you find this podcast interesting. And join us next time for another episode of the Brilliance Security Magazine podcast.